Okay, well, this is our uh, first podcast on uh, Politics Friday, I guess we'll call it. And um, we're going to be going through what book? Well, we're, we're going to start out going through Van Drunen is the author, and the name of the book is Politics After Christendom. Okay, so we're going to use that as kind of a, a jumping off point to discuss how we should think biblically about political stuff that's going on in our culture today. So here we go. That's right. Here we go. So I let's, it, let's I see it, it up. Now you can hit it. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to pray before I take my first swing and then we'll dive in. How about okay. that? Okay. Lord, uh, open our eyes to your words concerning this subject. How do we think through what we see today politically through your lens? How does your word inform our thoughts? Guide us towards that goal in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> we're going to follow Van Drunen, as you said, Hampton, and there's four uh, big issues to start out with. So these are not um, so much we're going to nail them down to the floor. These are just things you should have in the back of your mind. Um, as I engage in political discussions today, usually, usually they're of two types. See if this is your experience as well. If, it's, if, if I'm discussing it with you, all I end up doing is affirming what you already believe. And all you end up doing is affirming what I already believe. So we'll talk for a few minutes and each of us goes away going, yeah, that's right. And the other side of the coin is if it's somebody I don't believe with, it usually lasts about two minutes because by the end of that time, we're each so angry, <laughs> right? <laughs> we, we've each just stated our dogma and then the other guy has walked away and I, and I come away affirmed that I'm right and that fool can't see the light of day. And I'm sure that guy thinks that about me as well. So my goal is not really to resolve that sort of conflict. My goal is to describe the biblical lens. So there's four really big ideas we have to have in our mind as we start floating around back there that almost inform uh, all the other concepts. It's, it's almost like when, when you're going through your school years, you know, once you learn addition and subtraction, you're not relearning those, but those are in your mind, right? As you're learning the higher concepts. So these things should be in the back of our mind. The first is natural law. Okay. So that's number one. Natural law, in short, refers to God's basic moral will for the human race, revealed in the created order itself, such that all people have the capacity to understand and respond to it. Just, just have that in your mind. As a for instance, I've often had this conversation with people. Oh, they will say, you know, yeah, I don't think the uh, Ten Commandments should be in our courtrooms because that's religious, you know? And I say, oh, well, uh, which one of those do you disagree with? <laughs> do, you think we should, do you think we should lie? Do you think we should commit adultery? Do you think we should steal them? 
No, no, of course not, right? Then what's wrong with having them up there? Those really refer uh, to natural law, the, the bulk of them. Of course, you have the ideas that all of that natural law comes from God, right? The first commandment, no other God except me and so on. But natural law is common to everybody. I really don't know a culture where murder is not against the law. Obviously, there will be little exceptions, but no one is going to just flat out say that that's okay. So have natural law floating around in the back of your mind. Second, the book we're, we're using as our foundation here by Van Drunen makes use of another classical idea. Augustine, do you say it Augustine or Augustine? What's common to you? I think I say Augustine. Hey, that's what I'm going to say. That's how I say it, too. I've, I've heard it both ways. Right. So Augustine's two cities. So, for instance, all of this ties in, Hampton, to all that we're doing on, on our podcast, right? Our revelation study, our worldview study, our political study. In the scriptures, there's a famous, there's two famous cities. One's... Jerusalem, one's Babylon, right? right? Jerusalem, right? We could call the city of God. That's where he built his temple. That's his, his footstool, right? Through which he rules the earth and so on. The, at the end of the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. Uh, the other city, its rival, Babylon, which conquered Jerusalem, right? Imagine the historical significance of that in 605 under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, try this on for size, a fun little fact. <clears throat> so the name Babylon, it kind of sounds cool as the name of a city. Well, most things in the ancient Near East are theophoric. That means they're really statements about God. Most, most names are like that. So the name Daniel, for instance, really comes from Don, the verb to judge, the letter I would represent our word my, and then L is a designation for God. So God is my judge. That's Daniel, right? Hazak, Hazak means strength. So Hezekiah, right? The I-A-H at the end stands for Yahweh, the, the personal name of the Lord. So Yahweh is my strength and so on. So Babylon and all the cultures did that. Like for instance, a fun one, uh, common to most people will know the Egyptian pharaoh, King Tut, right? <laughs> Tut on common. And, you know, they might say something like Tut Ankh Amun. Uh, really, it means Tut. Ankh means life. And Amun was one of their deities. So Tut, the life of Amun. And here's another fun one, because everybody knows the name Nebuchadnezzar right? That too was theophoric. So Nabu is one of their deities. Cod mm -hmm. um, comes from the word it, that really represents like a boundary, which can metaphorically mean like protection. And Ezer means prince. So may Nabu protect the prince. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's name means. So all that to say, when, when you get to Babylon, that comes from their two words, Bob Illy. Not Bob like my name, but B-A-B. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Bob Illy, the gates of heaven. If you were to walk down the street in ancient Babylon and just pull one of the pedestrians aside and say, what, what's the name of this place mean? He would say, well, it means the gates of heaven, but the application is this is where heaven touches earth. That's so what that, they would have. And does that go back to the Tower of Babel? Yeah, well, it, ultimately, yeah, Babylon comes from, from <clears throat> that founding, but but Babel there I mean, in the, means in the, in more the lex- like in the lexical yeah, etymology, etymology, not the ed, not the lexical etymology of it. That has more to do with confuse. Okay, right. Gotcha. To confuse gotcha. the right. But that is the founding of it, and it's interesting too, the person that founded that and what he was all about in the Old Testament. And we'll get into that at a later time. Okay. But all that to say, this the city Babylon is in their day, they would have thought, no, this is where heaven touches earth. So it's a perfect rival. And, and what they're rivaling is God himself, right? Jerusalem is God's city and they're, they're, they don't want that. They, they want to be the deity that rules. You know, they, they want to be the home, the city of all those things. So number one, keep natural law in mind. Number two, keep two cities in mind. That down through the ages, you've got the city of God and the city of the world, Babylon, under its various names. The original name was Babylon. But something like New York could easily uh, fit that description, easily. You know, it's kind of like the ruling city of the world at whatever time. Rome clearly would have fit that description um, under the New Testament times. In fact, Peter says that, right? Those who are in Babylon greet you. And he's referring to Rome when he says that. So the third thing to keep in mind is not just the two cities, but the two kingdoms that stand behind them. So the kingdom of God stands behind the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, and the kingdom of Satan stands behind Babylon, its rival. Finally, the fourth idea is keep in mind the biblical concept of covenants, not necessarily covenant theology, But keep that in mind, how significant the covenants of God are. You know, when he makes promises, when he cuts a deal, so to speak, he's going to follow through on that. And that's going to be really important uh, the next time we get together on our Friday Politics podcast about establishing the, the covenant with Noah as the foundation for human government. We're not going to get into that today, but we will get into that next time. It's significant. So natural law, two cities, two kingdoms, and covenants. Those things should be floating around in the back of our mind. So here we go with Van Drunen. He's going to make four points about the governments we observe today, or even down through the halls of history, you know, ever since Noah. And, and how did human beings govern themselves underneath God's sovereignty? And so we're going to come across four words about governments. And we're going to say, number one, 
that they're legitimate, and we'll explain that. Number two, even though they're legitimate, they're provisional. Okay. Number three, they're common. We'll explain how all these words apply. And number four, they're accountable. So legitimate, provisional, common, and accountable. So let me read a, a quick little section here. First, Van Drunen says, civil government is legitimate. By this, I mean that civil government has a right and even an obligation to carry out its proper work. As I argue later, civil government's proper work is to promote justice. Oh man, that's so critical. That is the job of government as God sees it. For instance, doesn't it say in Proverbs 14, 34, that righteousness exalts a nation? That's a good quote of that verse. That's critical to keep in mind. So think about it like this. Here's my question time. I mean, you know I'm, I'm fond of asking questions. I'd much rather do that than make statements. That, that might be the reverse of how most people approach it. But for me, asking questions is, is a joy. So I've posed this to many people in, in the midst of conversation. And I will say, uh, like I, I had this discussion with the guy in the Philippines. He was from the Netherlands, actually. He was at an orphanage. He, he had adopted a, a Filipino boy, raised him the fir first adoption out of that orphanage. He's done a great job. I mean, a tremendous work by this guy. And he's a politician in the Netherlands. So we started to talk. And I politician, said, but you're not a Christian, or do you know? He he gave voice to Christianity. I suspect it might have just been a cultural thing for him, um, but gave a voice to it. So I asked him what he thought the United States' greatest resource was. And, you know, he, he paused over that for a minute. And then, and then I asked, because he, he didn't answer directly, it took him a while to think about, which, which it should. I said, well, what, what's your greatest resource in the Netherlands? And I, I forget what he said, but he answered pretty quickly. Oh, we have, you know, such and such natural material. And I forget what he said, but I said, I, I don't agree with that. I said, I believe your greatest resource is the same as the greatest resource in the United States, and that's people. I think the image of God is a far superior thing to have in your country than gold or silver or oil or diamonds, right? right. Or forest, yeah. right? But that's how almost everybody thinks about it. Oh, the United States is so wealthy because we're so big and we have so many. That's not the source of our wealth, actually. And we're losing it quickly, by the way, the wealth right. that we do right. have. But that's never been the source of anybody's uh, real wealth. For instance, when you think uh, down through the halls of time of phenomenal wealth, well, Solomon comes to mind instantly, right? You have a statement in scripture that during Solomon's day, silver had no value because there was so much gold. And it's, it's not like we, they were mining gold, right? It's not that Israel had that natural resource. 
It's that things were run so efficiently and in Solomon's description, so righteously that wealth just flooded into that country, right? In the United States, for instance, if you need to get a loan, you go to a bank, get a loan, you know, fill out the papers and pretty much that stuff's all guaranteed. There's money to back up what you're borrowing and you can begin your business. In many developing countries, you can't do that. You can't go to the bank and get a loan. They, they don't have money in reserve to loan to you. And if you sign the papers, that's a piece of paper. That's not really worth much over there, right? It's righteousness that allows for the borrowing of capital and the payback of debt and so on. That's what really builds wealth in a nation. It, the resources are the people. And the way to govern that resource is with righteousness. That's how it should be done. That will bring wealth to any nation, well, no matter where they're well, starting from. I think about, I can't remember where I read it. There might've been Uncle Eric's uh, simplified uh, economics book. There's three things required for a society to work. And one of them was private ownership of property. And, you know, thus the 10 commandments, thou shalt not steal that private property. Right. And, and so, you know, if you borrow, then you pay it back or it's stealing. I mean, you know, so right. that, that would be a, perhaps the, a biblical principle behind what you're talking about. Of course it is. And think of the way that honors the resource, right? Again, it's not your gold. It's not your forests. It's not your diamonds. It's your people. And private ownership honors people. That's the resource, right? It's, it's putting the value on the right thing. So governments are legitimate. They have a right to exist. They have an obligation to carry out their work. Their primary work is to promote justice. Several New Testament texts speak explicitly of civil government and have been foundational from for Christian thinking about legitimate political authority. According to Paul, there is no governing authority except from God. And if governments are legitimate, then God has ordained them. And he makes that direct statement. Romans 13.1, except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's a direct quote from Romans 13.1. God establishes these authorities for beneficial purposes, namely to approve of those who do good and to bear the sword as an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So it's pretty simple moral enforcement, right? If you murder, you face a death penalty. You struck down the image of God. That's the role of government. Not to murder its citizens, <laughs> right? As in many of the governments we've seen for the last couple hundred years or so, but, but to take care of punishment for the evildoer who murders. Along similar lines, Peter writes of governors as sent by him, that is God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's 1 Peter 2.14. As such, these magistrates are God's servants and ministers. Back to Romans 13 doing their work well 
enables Christians. And here's the here's our goal, Hampton, is as we live in in our culture and underneath our political system, to lead a peaceful and quiet life. In order to do that, you need a, a firm government, right, that enforces the rules. So if we asked people, if we just took a poll on the street and said, you know, what's what's your goal for your life? I, I bet you would find maybe one in a hundred would answer this way, to live a quiet and peaceful life. <laughs> That's just simply stated that in the scriptures. Like, that doesn't sound like 2020. <laughs> it doesn't, does it? I, honestly, I bet you one in a hundred would answer that way. Right. My goal, stated by God, is to live a quiet and peaceful life. So that's 1 Timothy 2.2. Since God has ordained civil magistrates for such propitious ends, Christians ought to submit to them, honor them, pay taxes, and pray for them. All of those statements are, are quotes from Scripture. So let's just read Romans 13, start in verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it's a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor is due. So, that's the basic outline. Now, that doesn't mean uh, submit to the government no matter what, right? If, the, if Pharaoh is saying, hey, kill all the Egyptian babies, I'd say that's probably a good idea not to do that. Right. So right. as long help. as, yeah, go ahead. I couldn't go help ahead. trying to remember. It said something about not, not fearing authority. You know, right. do good and you won't fear authority. Right. I, I read the Bloodlands book, very big, thick history book of what Stalin and Hitler did to the Ukraine and Poland. Those people feared authority because they just came in and wiped out villages. And sure. And, and in my mind, in my mind, there's no question about that. You know, another example, God's ordained the family and he's ordained the father to be head of the family. Well, are there bad dads? Well, of course. So you handle that a different way, right? Yeah. So the, hey, Paul's, Paul's laying down the basic rule. So there should be clear understanding on what the basic rule is. There's times when that basic rule is broken. But 
Romans 13 is just the basic approach. The point is government authorities legitimate. That does come from God. Parental authorities legitimate. That comes from God. So now the next little section, they are legitimate, but that is balanced by the fact that they're provisional. So let's read what Van Drunen, why he would use that word to balance out the concept of legitimacy. The legitimacy of civil government needs to be complemented by another crucial biblical idea. Civil government is provisional. Provisional refers to something set in place for a limited time and purpose until something greater arrives. So the ultimate form of government, biblically speaking, and therefore, you know, in, in our minds is a king, benevolent king. That is the most efficient, best for the people. It's the best way to govern. We don't have that as our system. And why is that? <laughs> why don't we have that? A benevolent king? Yeah. Why, why is the U.S. what we call a, a democratic republic as, to po- as opposed to a kingship? Well, we didn't like the way it was working in the <laughs> 1800s. And so you don't know pre- a benevolent king like <laughs> Solomon. So Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Ever since Genesis 3, kings can go off track pretty quickly, by the way. So and if if the real goal of government is righteousness and you get an unrighteous king, man, you're you're in for a, a difficult time. Well, and what's the old saying? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Yes. And so it's harder for a rich man to go get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through yeah. the, eye of the needle. So there's something that goes on in the accumulation of wealth and power that it's really hard to resist becoming evil. And yep. you've got your Hobby Lobby family that use it for good, but you've also got our yep. tech giants of today that are not necessarily using it for for good. And so that's right. So if you end up with a king, it's really hard to stay just and all of those things. That's right. So, you know, in our sis, we'll go into this, you know, further down the road, but everybody knows, I think all our listeners would know in our system, that was one of the foundational beliefs was you better balance the powers because power corrupts. So you need three divisions, right? You need the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. You got to separate those so they're independent. And because of Genesis 3, I believe that's the best way to do it in the meantime. As long as our governments are provisional under God's sight anyway, that's the best way to do it until the ultimate righteous king comes. But when, when he comes, he's, we're not voting. You know, Jesus isn't going to run for office. He's, he's in Jerusalem. You can't vote him out. And when he says, here's the law, there, there's no other law. He is the law. He's the word. Well, so, I have a, maybe it's a backtrack, but I have a question. You said that, you know, the government is legitimate. And Romans 13 gives us 
the description of a legitimate government, one that protects. Yes. Right? So that we can lead a peace. Yes. When the government yes. fails to be protector of its citizens, it's no longer just, then does that make it no longer legitimate? And it, is that- I, I would say so. I, I would say so. Well, I would define it like this. I would divide it like this. Government itself, that concept is legitimate. The fact that human beings are the image of God is legitimate. If a government begins to abuse the image of God, it becomes illegitimate, right? You change it, you get it back on track until it's performing its job legitimately. I just that, that's how I'd answer. You're planning on having a discussion about, you know, it's often debated whether or not we should have had a revolution in 1776 because we violated Romans 13. So I didn't know if you planned on talking yeah. about that. It, only, only to this extent. Are there any subjects outside of not the application of theology, but theology itself that aren't debatable? Because we live in a fallen world. So it's, it's hard to say, always do this, always do that, right? We, we live in the midst of unrighteousness. So we're, we're striving towards the goal, but you're never really going to attain that goal until Jesus returns. Right. There's always trade offs. You know, one thing's better than this. So you, you do it. You know, if if Pharaoh says, uh, hey, kill all these kids and you lie to him and you don't kill the kids, I'd say you're doing the right thing, <laughs> even though. Right. You're going to get dirty in the midst of you're going to you yourself will get morally dirty because we live in a fallen world. But the Lord, Lord clearly understands that clearly. I would take it one step further. Here's a little food for thought that we, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I'll just plant the seed. I've, I've had plenty of discussion on this issue over the years, uh, but I'm confident of my position. I would say it like this, with the deceitful, God can be deceptive. <laughs> that sounds weird when you first hear it, but you can see direct evidence of that in the scriptures, Ahab was a bad guy. Mm -hmm. It was time for him to die at the end of first Kings. And God sent a lying spirit to his prophets. That's just flat out in the text, just about the way I stated it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like this, the way I've fleshed it out with people is, uh, and this might be fun to do with somebody like with your son, Josiah, who's, recently got his driver's license right say hey josiah when you're going through that school zone and you're supposed to be going 20 but if you're not paying attention you might be cruising through there at 40 can the cop go 60 to catch you even though the speed limit is 20 let me tell you you sit before a judge and you go i'm innocent because that cop was going see you're gonna get thrown in jail, right? The cop can go 60 to catch you, even though the limit's 20, right? So mm -hmm. with the deceptive, God can be deceptive. In the midst of that, he'll tell you the truth as well, but he can send a lying spirit. Just directly says that. So anyway, here we are yeah, back to our text. What happened to Saul? I just was reading in 1 Samuel. 
Yeah, the evil spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So when when you uh, it's almost like sometimes one way to explain it is. Um, yeah, I heard a writer once say it this way. It was a, it was an interesting thought. So this is just for your consideration. So they were describing a, a person working the night audit at like a hotel or, or some business. And oh, it turns out, you know, they needed some money for to catch the bus on the ride home. So when they were closing out the cash register, they just took a few bucks so that they could catch their ride. And this author was saying, you know what they should do? Just take the whole thing. So you know you're stealing. Because if you if you take just a couple bucks, you can rationalize that to yourself. You know, oh, it's not very much, and I, I really needed that. And in some ways, you know, maybe you'd be right. But this guy was saying, take the whole thing. So you know that's stealing. So I often think, you know, Pharaoh's the real example of this in the Bible. And it will say five times in the context of Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it says five times God hardened his heart. Right. The first mention, the first mentions Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. So I often picture in my own mind, you're walking down a path and all of a sudden it forks. And there's a clear choice and you make the wrong choice, but you're only a couple steps down that path. Initially, it's almost as if God would take you down to the end of that path. You know what I mean? While you're only four or five steps down the path, you're still not that unrighteous, so to speak. Oh, but you made that decision. So he'll push you all the way down that. Path. And it, that looks like what he's doing with Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh hardened his heart. You got God going, okay, let's walk down that path, Pharaoh, all the way till you see what that's really going to cost you to do the wrong thing. I kind of think it's like that. Yeah. So, so governments are legitimate, but they're provisional. For instance, another biblical example, I mean, imagine uh, Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king on earth at that time, and he sees the statue right? The ruling king of the kingdoms over the earth. He's the head of gold. And then the kingdoms are delineated as you move downward. Well, that's, those are human governments, you find out, as, date, as Daniel explains it later on, the end of the chapter. What happens to those human governments? What happens to that statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Doesn't it just get crushed, right. pounded to dust by a stone? made without hands, right? God's ultimate government is coming to destroy the provisional governments that exist in the meantime. That, that's as clear a picture as you could have. So governments as we know them today, they're legitimate. You gotta have a government. You have to have some sort of regulation. You need an administration over a nation, but they should keep in mind that that's provisional. They're not the ultimate solution. So jumping ahead before we hit the third third item in, in Van Drunen's layout here, uh, that is one of the issues you see with liberalism is that's pretty much a godless system. Right? Right. And so they don't they don't see human government as 
provisional. They see it as ultimate, right? The, a biblical Christian would see human government as provisional. That one day that's going to be destroyed. God's coming back and he's setting up his kingdom directly. Liberalism doesn't see that. They've removed God, so they think government is the ultimate end. So you can see how that gets off track right away. Yeah, right? and it becomes the solution to your problems instead of God being the solution. That's right. That's exactly right. In, instead of honoring the image and recognizing legitimate government, they remove the source of the image and, and so become the, the monster of government, right? When, when Daniel later on in the book of Daniel describes the governments coming upon the earth first in chapter two, you saw them as a statue, right, of kingship. You see them later on in that book as beasts, right? Mm -hmm. um, Alexander's described as the leopard, Rome is the fourth beast. It's not even any kind of natural components to it. It's iron and clay. It's gotten so bad, right? Goats, lions, all these things are used to describe kingdoms, beasts. They're, they're no longer run by the image, right? They've, they've done away with the image. They're not human. They're beastly. So, uh, for instance, here's a good verse to keep in mind. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Human government's provisional. It will not stand the test of time. It's here until Christ returns. Right. Very important to, to keep in mind. Here's the third. So first, they're legitimate. But second, the balance to that is they're provisional. Third, they're common. The other pair of truths, reading Van Drunen now, is that civil governments are common but accountable. God has ordained civil government to wield authority in political communities for the benefit of the human race in common. Government is not for some sorts of people rather than other sorts. It's common to all. One type of government is not to serve those of one ethnic or religious identity and an essentially different type of government to serve those of a different identity. How do we even not mention here the hypocrisy in our government? Yeah, uh, it's common. It should be for all. Hey, right. President Biden, the same rules you're signing on to, you need to obey yourself. If we have to wear a mask, so do you. And you will see when the camera's not on those people, they don't wear them. It's all just a show. And, and that's on both sides of the aisle. But, but government isn't just for us, the peasants. It's not for well, the people, it's and, for everybody. And it's not just this whole pandemic thing. It goes back to they're on a different um, health care system than the and, rest of us. Uh, that's what I was going to say next. Got, 
what was it, you know, the, their retirement, if I'm not mistaken, they just get the same salary for the rest of their lives, even if they only serve two years in Congress. Our government is an, an elite ruling class. No question. No question. That's what it's become. There is no question about that. I don't. And the, the first thing you mentioned is is where I was going to go. Remembering when they passed Obamacare, not for them. That was for me and you. But they were on their own system. Right. And the biblical perspective is that government is common. And hence, right there, I think Hampton is our real answer for what we were just sort of stepping around earlier. If, if the government's common to all, well, it can't murder, right? Because right. murder is wrong for us as citizens, it's wrong for the government as well, right? So you, right. you change that when, when that happens. So our three words so far are legitimate, provisional, common, and here's the, the fourth one, accountable. Oh man, that's a good one. <laughs> civil government. Instead, here's Van Drunen. Civil governments are accountable to God and his standards of justice. And we, we saw that in, in the book of Daniel. You know, God coming down as the stone that crushes all the human governments. But he holds governments accountable down, down through the ages. Uh, there's a great Boy, I don't have it right in front of me. This may be Amos, like chapters, yeah, Amos, chapters one and two. Man, he's coming down. Let's just look at those real quick. Maybe not read uh, those two chapters in full, but so Amos chapter one. Let me just read the, read the first two verses so you get a feel for it. <clears throat> the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. Two years before the earthquake, he said, the Lord roars from Zion. And from Jerusalem, he utters his voice. And the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn and the summit of Carmel dries up. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And so as the, the chapter goes and chapter two, right, here's Damascus, which is Syria. Here's Philistia. Here's Tyre. Here's Edom. Here's Moab and Ammon and so on. Right. And he's going to lay into all of them. And the reasons are essentially for immorality. Right. Unjustice. The, the whole role of government is righteousness and justice. And for unjustice and unrighteousness, he will wipe you out. That's just stated in those chapters. So governments are accountable to God. There's you, you're never going to. I understand the liberals have removed God. And, and in fact, right. Do you remember? Boy, I remember being in Kansas City. Couple years ago, when they uh, watching the Democratic National Convention, and they, they removed the mention of God from their platform, and I'm just shaking my head, going, "Okay, you are accountable to Him. You can you can say there's no God, but there is, and right. you are you are accountable to Him. Oh man! So <clears throat> that's about where I wanted to end up the first time, Hampton. So yeah. the four concepts. 
government is legitimate, but it's provisional. It's common to all, but it's accountable. So that's our groundwork for moving forward. And, and those ideas are inherent in the scriptures. So right. we'll, move, we'll move forward from there. Do you have any questions? No, that was very good. Very applicable to today. I, I think it's helpful. You have to do that because as we mentioned at the start, I am not really interested in political debate. Right. right. Other than if it's constructive and you're you're legitimately trying to solve a problem or something. Well, we will see examples of these principles. You'll see examples of them and it'll be pretty clear where you should stand. Right. So that's what I wanted to do. Lay, lay this biblical foundation. We have more work to do. This was just the first pillar in the foundation. We've, we've got a few more to lay, but we'll enjoy that. Okay. Well, All right. until next time.